Did Mary know? She knew. I know we know this song. Many of us have heard it. A lot of us have tried to sing it. And as the text will tell us today, that she had received the message from God himself, sent by Gabriel, that she was going to bear the Messiah. And the people of God for thousands of years had hoped in this promised savior. And so as we enter into this Advent study and we consider the testimonies that are surrounding the birth narrative, we're first gonna look at Mary's role in the Advent. And my prayer this week has been uh, for, for those of us who have heard this story a thousand times, that would be fresh and anew for us today through the living word, not through myself. I have no power to, do, to create that. But that we would see God's word and that we would marvel yet again at this miracle that we're about to talk about. And that we would not become familiar with the things that are glorious. For those of us perhaps that have never really considered the virgin birth, I pray that it falls on you for the first time today. And that you would know that there has been provision made for your flesh to be saved by a God who was born in the flesh and yet fully God, as we will talk about. This is the significance of the passage that we are going to look at. And a driving question that I want us to consider today from this text is this. Why is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ so significant and magnificent? And I believe the text provides three answers for us that we will look at. And the first one uh, is found in verses 26 through 30. Why is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ so significant? Well, first we see because the message came from heaven to an earthly servant. This is not a message from man. This wasn't found in the Daily Gazette. This is a message that was sent from the throne room of God to a chosen servant. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Well, we see in verse 26, the sixth month, uh, the angel Gabriel came to Mary. The sixth month of what is the natural question there. And we see in verse 36 that it's actually the sixth month of Elizabeth's birth. And if you know uh, your Bible, uh, Elizabeth is the cousin of Mary. And we just learned in the narrative right above the narrative that we're looking at today that the same angel Gabriel came to Zechariah, who is married to Elizabeth, and he told of wonderful news to Zechariah that they would conceive a son even in their old age and even though Elizabeth was barren, they were going to conceive a son and this son was, would be known as John the Baptist, the one who was going to make straight the pathway of the Lord. It was a miracle in and of itself. Now this same angel Gabriel who it says back in verse 19 of chapter one, has stood in the presence of God, is now sent from God to a city called Nazareth, 
which is a city in Galilee, north of Jerusalem. Now, Nazareth was a fairly insignificant city, quite modest uh, uh, compared to cities that were around that region. It was located between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. It was a blue-collar town with a lot of different Gentiles and a lot of different poor people. In fact, it was Nathaniel who, in the Gospel of John, asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, it's Gabriel who was sent from the throne room of God to this humble city. And he's looking for a woman whose name is Mary. And we learn quite a bit about Mary in verse 27. We learn that she is a virgin, and we learn that she is betrothed to a man named Joseph who is from the house of David. Now, many scholars put Mary between the ages of 12 and 14 because she is betrothed. She's not quite old enough to be married. Now, betrothed has a binding contract to it. She was promised to Joseph. It's, it's a little different than the engagement level that we have in our society today because if you're betrothed and you break the betrothal, you have to decree divorce in order to do that. So it's a little bit different than our engagement. But she was a woman who was betrothed. Notice how Gabriel speaks to her in verse 28. He says, greetings, O favored one, for the Lord is with you. Now that little phrase, favored one, is quite important. It simply means chosen graciously by God. According to his own selection, he freely bestows his grace to whom he wants to bestow his grace to. And as I already mentioned, Mary is, uh, we prov as, uh, the text provides information about Mary that's quite important. And this is why she's chosen graciously by God. First and foremost, she was a virgin, which means that she qualified according to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7, that a woman who had never had sexual relations would bear forth the Son of God. She, she, she was a virgin. She was pure sexually. She had not fornicated with anyone, and fornication would have been an abomination in the sight of God, as, as all fornication is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, in the line of Christ, we see several different uh, women who are sexually impure, women such as Bathsheba, who, who, bore, who bore forth Solomon, and certainly God's grace uh, overcame that situation and overcame Bathsheba. But we cannot pass over the point that she had not been with a man. When God chose his entrance into the world, he specifically chose the avenue of a virgin birth. And this is important because it also conveys that she was not currently pregnant. Uh, there was no human stain on her. There was no man who could, who could claim that the pregnancy belonged to him. We also see that she's betrothed to a man of the house of David. And beloved, as we've been discussing, we have been talking about how the Messiah was going to come from the lineage of David, from the house of David. If you remember back from our study of the book of Haggai, it was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that the Messiah would come from David and would sit on David's throne forever. Now, Jesus does not come from the seed of Joseph, and we're going to talk about that here in just a second. But being from the lineage of David, 
qualified Joseph to be an earthly father. Ultimately, this allowed the legal relationship for Jesus to be associated and adopted with Joseph, which would qualify him to be in that Davidic line as was long promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, uh, this is important. Verse 27 tells us a lot about Mary. She is a virgin. That's very important for the theology that we hold to. And it also tells, tells us that she is betrothed to someone in the line of David. And these two truths about Mary were prophesied long ago that the son would come from this type of pedigree. And I don't want that to be lost on us. He's talking about the qualification that, that she has before us. That's who Mary is. It's also important for us to know who Mary is not. We as Protestants vastly differ from the position held by the Roman Catholic Church. We believe with deep conviction that Mary was faithful, that Mary was favored by God, uh, that Mary is unique in the role that God has asked her to play, but Mary herself is not extraordinary. We see throughout church history in the fourth century, there's a man by the name of Jerome who translated the Bible into Latin. We, we know that text as the Latin Vulgate. And he translates this phrase, O favored one, in a different way. He translates it, full of grace. This translation is really the seed to such doctrines in the Catholic Church like the Immaculate Conception which was established in 1854 by Pope Pius IX. The Immaculate Conception uh, believes that not only was God involved in the Immaculation, but a sinless Mary was involved in the conception of the Lord Jesus. The Roman Catholic Church, in fact, has an entire doctrine on Mary called Mariology and many papal decrees. And, and we have to remember in the in the, in the Catholic Church, the Pope is infallible, and what he says is equal to what the Word of God says. And popes began to continue to make doctrinal statements about Mary, like the Assumption of Mary in 1950, that she was not dead when she died, but her body was assumed into heaven, and that, and that Mary was the Queen of Heaven in 1954. And that she's able to dispense grace and that she's able to serve as a mediator between God and man herself. Beloved, we do not hold to these doctrines because there is no scriptural warrant for these doctrines. We believe very differently about this young lady. We believe that Mary was normal and that grace was bestowed upon her because God asked her to do something significant but we also believe that she needed the grace of Emmanuel of the one that she was birthing. Mary was favored because she was called upon to bear the one who was extraordinary. In fact, you can even see the normalness of Mary in verse 29 in her response. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Beloved, she was stunned that an angel stood before her and was saying such things. She was trying to wrap her mind around it just as any of us 
would do the very same. She was perplexed, and look how Gabriel comforts her in verse 30. He beckons her not to be afraid, and he calls her by name and reminds her yet again that she is a favored one, God's grace supplied. An extraordinary, heavenly message brought to an ordinary young lady. Isn't that what God does? He chooses the weak. He chooses the common to display and to dispense his grace. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to man. Moses was slow of speech and tongue and didn't want to do what God was asking him to do. David was the youngest son, not even initially considered by his own father to be brought forth before Samuel. Paul was small and he was not very eloquent. Rahab was a prostitute. You can see this on and on throughout the scriptures. And beloved, are we not weak and common ourselves? Has grace not come down from heaven to us? I can't imagine all the weakness in this room right now, all the ways that we are suffering or struggling. Some of us are really excited about the Christmas season and some of us are not so excited about the Christmas season. Many people in our congregation have lost loved ones this time of year, some of, some of whom are coming up on their first anniversary of such sorrow. I want you to be reminded that it is God who comes down from heaven to comfort the weak, to serve the common, and to bestow his grace. This is the heart of our God. He does not care. He does not uh, use extraordinary people to do extraordinary things. He himself is the extraordinary one. So however you find yourself this Christmas season, remember that there's hope. We're not trying to muster up fake Christmas cheer here. We're trying to rest in the fact that God came down from heaven and that makes this message different. Number two, why is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ so significant? Well, as we're gonna see in verses 31 through 37, because the message contains miraculous truths about the Messiah. Look with me in 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him to the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, and, um, and his kingdom there will be no end. Beloved, Mary isn't the center of this story. We're confident in that. In fact, the message from heaven is rooted in another person. Look what it says. You will conceive and bear a son whose name is Jesus. It's Joshua in Hebrew. It means savior and he will be great. Now, Gabriel told Zechariah that his son John would be great. But you know what he did not tell Zechariah? That he would be called son of the most high like he tells Mary. And this little baby would be king. He's different. He's son of the most high, which means he's begotten by God. He, he's from God himself, ordained by God for David's throne, uh, meant to rule over Jacob, who is Israel, the house of Israel. And as it says in the scripture, his kingdom will have no end. This is that kingdom that we talked about last week in Hebrews chapter 12, the kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is the very same kingdom that is pronounced here by the 
by the angel. This is the identity of the Messiah, one from God who would come from the line of David and who would sit on Jacob's, in Jacob's house and over Jacob's house. If you have your Bible, would you flip over just a couple of pages to Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38. We don't have time to go through this entire genealogy, but I want to encourage you to go and read it with your family or to read it by yourself this afternoon. This is profoundly important to what we believe in the Christian faith because this is the identity of the Messiah. I want us to see that Joseph is connected all the way back to Adam. That's what we see in this lineage. And it shows generation how the seed that God promised in Genesis 3.15, the one that would defeat the head of the serpent, was promised to Adam and Eve in their judgment. And that's why if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, Eve could not wait to have a baby. Knowing that the baby was going to be the one who defeated the one who had tricked her, deceived her. And what we see here is that God raises up two sons from them, Cain and Abel. And Cain kills Abel. He, he kills him. The, righteous one, or the unrighteous one kills the righteous one. And all hope looks lost in Genesis chapter 3 for just a second. And then God raises up Seth. And you see his name written there in Luke chapter 3. And you see from Seth and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Boaz, Jesse and David, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. Do you remember these names? All the way to Joseph, that this is the seed that was promised to come and crush the head of the serpent. But Jesus did not come from the seed of Joseph. In fact, all of these men were not qualified to have their seed as the one in which the Messiah came from because these are sinners. These are sinful men. We see in Romans chapter five that death entered through one man whose name is Adam and death entered into all men. So God has to miraculously intervene so that a Messiah can be brought forth. And Mary asked the very sincere question that all of us would ask. How will this be since I am a virgin? This shows further her, her purity. And it shows further her, the impossibility that she is able to conceive a son as a virgin. But I want us to notice Gabriel's reverent response. As J.C. Ryle says in verse 35. And the angel answered her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And in this sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And I don't want us to miss the fact real quick in verse 36 that as Mary is getting this news, how God comforts her by saying, hey, a family member of yours is also experiencing a miracle. God is up to something. Trust God even when you can't see it. That's the way that our gracious God comforts us even when we're frightened. But God says, Let the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Now, beloved, this is not a sexual encounter. This is miraculous. It's the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And before we move on to the incarnation itself, I want us to to recognize, I don't want us to miss the prominent position that the Spirit of God plays in bringing forth the incarnate Son. The Spirit has this beautiful role in the work of redemption. In, In doing something powerful, he's going to overcome her. And as Matthew says, the Holy Spirit is responsible for the conception of the Son. The Spirit is also responsible for the offering of Christ who through the eternal Spirit of God offers his body for us. It's the Holy Spirit who comes after the Son raises to the right hand of God. Don't read the text and miss the work of the Holy Spirit from the text. This miracle that we're talking about here is called the incarnation. And a lot of us hear that term and it bounces off our brains like a tennis ball to a tank because we've heard it so many times. I pray that we would take a, a new look at it today. God put on flesh, Emmanuel. Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. In fact, over 80 times in the text, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. That's his preferred title. But we see in John chapter one, as has already been prayed over for us in our hearts and as we've joined Corey in prayer, the word Jesus became flesh. Not all persons of the tree, not the, not, not the father or the spirit, but the son became flesh. He is first and foremost fully man. And this is gonna feel real doctrinal here. I, I, I don't, I've been praying all week that it would be clear and edible but also profound so that we can marvel. He is fully man because he was born of woman. Just as was promised in Genesis chapter three, just as was prophesied in Isaiah chapter seven, just as God appointed at the right time in Galatians chapter four, consider Paul's words, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. In Galatians 4, what Paul means by born of woman is that Jesus came out of Mary. He's from out of Mary. The eternal pre-existing son took on the human nature from the substance of his own mother. The spirit did not just implant uh, the seed in Mary but formed her from, or formed him from her flesh. That's a really important point for us to understand as to how Christ became fully human. One theologian, Greg Nichols says, thus Mary contributed everything a human mother contributes in gestation and conception. She is in every sense Jesus' biological mother. From her flesh, from her blood, from her bones, this is remarkable that he came from his own mother. He probably had his, her, her skin complexion or her hair color. He probably even looked like his own mother. Jesus is not from Joseph. This is what we see back in Matthew chapter one. 
It says he did not know his wife until after she had given birth. He did not look like Joseph. And this is an important thing because Joseph was marred by sin. Like those who are born in the first Ad- from the first Adam, like, like you and, and me. But Jesus was sinless. Another very important doctrine when we think about the incarnation. When we say that he's born of the flesh, it, it means that he's born in the likeness of men, Philippians 2. He, he's born in human form. And he's in the likeness of sinful flesh. But here the word flesh simply means body or weak futility, not corrupt nature. There's a huge difference in in the fleshly nature of Christ versus the carnal, fleshly, sinful nature that you and I have. So when we discuss the incarnation, it's always the humanity of Christ and not a sinful nature that Christ had because he had no sin. And in this, Christ became a new representative for humanity. We already have a representative for fallen humanity. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter five. His name is Adam. And listen to what Paul says in in Romans chapter five, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all had sinned. And what I'm trying to say here is Jesus is not in Adam. The way that sin is passed is through the seed of man. And I hope that doesn't create too much of a logjam in our minds. But sin is passed through the man. And it's passed to all women, including Mary who is sinful. But it's passed through the man who produces seed and passes it along. And so when we get to the point where Jesus stops the line of David and intersects it, it's because he knows the line of David itself cannot bring forward Emmanuel. It cannot bring forward the one who can both save sinners and identify with sinners and also be the spotless lamb of God who is not born of the first Adam. He is fully God. Jesus is begotten by God, fully God, conceived by the Spirit of God. God who is Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging. This is also who Jesus fully is. John says that the Word is with God, which shows a distinct person with God. And it also, John also says Jesus was God, or the word was God. That means equal with God, highlighting the, the triune relationship of the living God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and how he shared a divine nature in John chapter 1. He was not almost God. He was not sometimes God. He was fully God, and he was fully man. Jesus then is the divine son, and as the son, he is not created. He instead is the eternal son through whom all of creation exists and is sustained. As we saw in Colossians 1 over a year ago, as my brother already prayed, he is is the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, as it says in Hebrews chapter 1. 
It is this son who became flesh. And even in the flesh, even when he was a baby, as a seed, as a fetus, he remained God, the nature of God. He is immutable, as it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 12. He never changes. He's always the same. I want us to think about that. Even in all of his humility, as, the, as, a, as a child, he's still sustaining the universe by the strength of his might. Athanasius wrote, for he was not while present in the body, absent elsewhere. Nor while he moved the body was the, the universe left void of his working in providence. But this most marvelous word as he was, so far from being contained by anything, he rather contained all things himself. And just as while present in the whole of creation, he is at once distinct in being from the universe and present in all things by his own power, giving order to all things, even while present in a human body and himself quickening that body. He was manifest from the working of the universe as well. He is sustaining the universe by the strength of his might while his own mother is strengthening his body as he grows and develops. That is the mystery and the power and the glory of the incarnation. I love Christmas cookies. I don't love Christmas cookies like that truth right there. That is heavy, good stuff that sustains you when you are suffering this Christmas season, or when you are in need of grace and hope, is that God is sustaining all things by the strength of his might, and he always has, and he always will, and he even did when he was a baby. Unbelievable. Theologians like TJ call this the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union is when is Christ who, who is one person exists in two natures. He's one person. He's unique. He's rational. He's volitional. He's relational. The hypostatic union is talking about the unity of Christ's constitution. He's not two persons in one. He's one person with two natures. Charles Hodges, great theologian, said, the Son of God never addressed the Son of Man as a different person from himself. The scriptures reveal but one Christ. Hurts the brain, right? Let it. We're not supposed to get it, but we're supposed to believe it. The Son begotten from the Father and supernaturally sanctified by the agency of the Spirit without any change or loss of deity at any time, added a second nature to himself consisting of the human body and the human soul. And he took on the form of a servant and he knew we weren't gonna even be able to grasp that. The son added a human dimension to his personal life, to his divine life and became present it's a new mode of existence. It's the, the incarnate son. And the son's substance and action is now both revealed in each nature that he has. He's perfect, human, and he is divine Lord without sin. This is who Messiah is. Promised, but not fully grasped yet until after he came and we still are struggling and fighting 
to understand it. But the incarnate son, Jesus, is able to provide that human obedience that is necessary to fulfill the law. Uh, we, we see this, uh, the need of this in the scriptures, that by becoming the perfect obedient servant gave us access to eternal life by believing in him. And Jesus, in his human nature, fulfills this. It says in the, in, in the scriptures that he is the better Adam, but he's also divine, divine by working and securing our eternal redemption for us as only a perfect spotless lamb, as John introduced the world to, could do. Beloved, the virgin birth and the incarnation are primary doctrines of the Christian faith. They're essential to the gospel. They're essential to Christmas. God took on flesh and he dwelled among us and he was born to die so that we might live. And this act can only be accomplished by God. That's why there's no fingerprints of man in it. He used man to bring forward the constitution of man. But no, no man can do the miracle that the work of the Holy Spirit could do. We need one from heaven who has no sin to do such a work as this. And look what it says in 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Beloved, it's impossible for us. It's hard for us to understand. But what is impossible for us is not impossible for our God. This is a mystery, and it's a part of Christianity. In fact, Joel Beakey, a great theologian, says the incarnation is the mystery which has no parallel, perhaps other than the Trinity itself. It is mysterious, but it's also so comforting. A couple of ways to apply this to our hearts. I want us to consider the reverence in which Gabriel speaks. He's coming from the throne of God and is giving forward instruction. This is how it's going to be. Have reverent reflections like that of Gabriel this Christmas season. Don't be bored. Don't be apathetic. Ask the Spirit of God to penetrate anew your own heart to marvel at these things. We, we need to know. We need to know the truth of the incarnation for us to fully grasp and understand the glory of God and the gospel. Beloved, reflect on Christ's humility this Christmas season. The condescension, the condescension of Christ. You remember what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8? He who is rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. He did that for us. He left the glory and the majesty of the throne of heaven as the eternal son of God and went to Nazareth. Born in Bethlehem and took on flesh to dwell among us. The humility, the humility of Christ drives our humility since we are now born in Christ. We are not too good for anything if he's not too good for heaven. Let the humility of Christ drive you this Christmas season and all seasons after. And beloved, I pray that we would reflect on the gospel of Christ because he is the one who took on flesh, atoning for our sin while remaining the spotless lamb. The sacrifice was accepted before the Father. Why did the Messiah need to be both God and man? 
That's a really important question in theology. Well, it's only the incarnate son who can redeem, who can do both a divine and a human work. He satisfies his own judgment against sin by being divine. And he fulfills the perfect obedience demanded and required of human flesh for entrance into heaven by being born of woman. He took on our sin in his body on the tree. And he, and he stands as the perfect mediator. It's where heaven and earth collide in the body of Christ, divine and human, perfect in obedience, righteous, glorious, and spotless. He alone can take on the sin of the world and atone for our sins. That's why David couldn't do it. Joseph couldn't do it. Adam, Seth, nobody could do it. But Christ can do it. Recognize he did it. Believe in it. Trust the work of the incarnate son of God. And lastly, why is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ so significant? Well, it's significant because it came down from heaven. It's significant because it teaches us these marvelous, wondrous truths of the Messiah. But it also teaches us Verse 38, how to respond in faith to God's word. Even when it's confusing, even when it's difficult, let's, let's look at Mary's response. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. What a faithful response for such a young woman. She at first doubted, remember? She said, how will this be since I am a virgin? But ultimately, she believed, I am a servant of the Lord God. What a humble response. You think she was scared? You think she was confused? Do you, do you think she was wondering how in the world is this possible? I don't want us to miss two responses from her that I hope are applied in our own lives. One, it's a faith in the word. Look what she says. She says, let it be. In the Greek, that's the emphatic imperative. She's saying, let it be if this is what God would want. I don't have all the answers. I don't know how this is gonna work. But if this is from the mouth of God, then let it be as he has desired. This is Mary's fiat. She's trusting in God's own word rather than her own emotions, her own feelings, her own fears. Eve did not trust in the word of God. She instead ate the fruit. We see here, we, we see a woman who, who isn't trusting in the scenario in which she sees, but she's trusting in the word of God. And then secondly, she says that she's a servant, servant of the Lord. What a humble response. She believed that despite what it was gonna do for her, you think there was a few slandering comments about Mary? Do you think she had some doubts about her reputation within the community? But she responds with, I am a servant of God. What a faithful response to trust in the word rather than your own life. Beloved, do you trust God's word like that? Even when it doesn't make sense, even when you're riddled with fear, even when you're confused by what's going on in your life, even when doubts creep up, do you say, let it be? Let it be according to God's word. 
Have you risked everything to be the Lord's servant? Have you determined in your own mind and heart, whatever God has required of me according to his word, I am a servant of the Lord. A quick application. We need the grace of God just as Mary needed the grace of God. But what a faithful response that we can learn from. Jesus was born to die and to save us. Listen to John chapter three, verse 16 through 18. For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you believe? Do you believe in the only Son of God? Because if you do, eternal life waits for you. Your sins are atoned for. You are forgiven. He died for your sins that you may have life in the second and the better and the greater Adam who gathers a people for himself from all nations who have trusted in him, the one born of of God, and woman, but not of man. This is the hope of the gospel. If you have not trusted in this son, you sit there condemned as the scripture says. I say this in love to you. I say this as an appeal to consider your life. You cannot save yourself, but God has provided a gift. And it's better than anything you're gonna find on your tree. It's a gift that is eternal that was here before the foundation of the world, that came, put on flesh, humbled himself, took on the penalty that you deserve in your sin, rose from the dead, conquered the grave, and is at the right hand of God right now praying for his church. And he is coming again to sit on the throne of David forever. Because David, as, as Peter says in Acts, David, David's tomb is right over here. And so is his body. But our, 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 our king, uh, the son of God, has raised from the dead to gather a pe- people to himself. So two quick responses, two quick responses. Marvel at the mystery of the miracle of the Messiah of Christmas. That's a lot of M's, I get that. And I didn't see it until I said it out loud to you. But I want to encourage you to marvel at the mystery of the Messiah Spend time thinking about the incarnation. Go read the scriptures and pour over them. And if you're bored, stay longer and ask God to open up your mind that you may marvel. Go read helpful books like Athanasius' book on the incarnation who who has this profound ability to say things that I can't say and to help us to go deeper into things that I'm not really able to do. Maybe you feel the same. Go marvel at these mysteries. Don't turn on the TV. Don't run to the store. Don't do these. Marvel at the mystery. To ponder why he came. Why he came to die. This is 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus came to save sinners. Paul says, of which I am the foremost. Beloved, I'm going to say the same thing. Of which I am the foremost. This is why he was born so that he would die. Can you believe that the Son of Man has offered grace to you? That you may know him, that you may marvel at him, that you may worship him, and that you may live with him forever? 
ponder why he came. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have sent your only begotten son, born of woman, born of the spirit, fully God and fully man, taking on his body the penalty of man's sin while being divine and perfect and holy. Oh God, thank you. Help us to make room for Messiah in our heart. In Christ we pray, amen.